Well, if you would, open up your Bibles, and we're in John chapter 14. We're going to read and study verses 15 through 31. We're in a summer sermon series titled Resurrected Living, and we've been looking at ways in which Jesus' resurrection impacts our lives as his followers. And we've looked so far at different things like resurrected hope and resurrected minds, resurrected prayer. Today's sermon is titled Resurrected Obedience. On the surface, it sounds torturous. Obedience, it's like the last thing that we want to spend our time thinking about. But before you start squirming in your seats, consider this. Our obedience, or lack thereof, says a lot about us. Especially in one important area that we do like to spend time thinking about. Love. How so? Let's read our passage and take a look. Matthew, or excuse me, John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will, will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever, keeps my command, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I, live, I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of God, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths, and um, they bring joy to our souls and to our minds. May we understand by your spirit these words given to us. May they bring to remembrance what is true and right and good. And may we deeply love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Obedience. What comes to your mind when you hear the word obedience? We don't like the word, do we? 
Who here wakes up in the morning all excited about the opportunities for obedience that lie ahead? I can't wait to brown nose my teacher today. Nobody says that. It's true, isn't it? None of us are born with a natural desire to be obedient to anyone other than ourselves. We bristle at the idea of being accountable to anyone. We like to think that we're the captains of our own souls, and so we obey others only when it's advantageous to us. When I look back on my childhood, most of the times that I obeyed, it was because it actually worked out best for me. If I did my chores, I got my allowance. If I didn't come home on time for dinner, I couldn't watch Fantasy Island. Look, boss, it played. Some of you are like, what in the world? All right, Google it, Fantasy Island. Scripture teaches us that we are like this, my friends, because we were born this way. The great Protestant Reformation leader, Martin Luther, described our born with human nature with the Latin phrase, incurvitus in se, incurvitus in se, which means to be turned in or curved in towards oneself. The phrase describes a life lived focused inward towards self rather than outward and upward towards God and others. Scripture tells us that we were made by God for God. In other words, we were originally made with a nature that was thoroughly turned upward and outward. But Luther says because of our original sin, our born with nature, that it's so curved in on itself that, listen, even the that we even bend the best gifts of God for our own pleasure. And so here's a point for us to ponder. We obey the one whom we love most. And because our, our curved in nature, we are born loving and obeying, obeying ourselves most. For this reason, we obey our boss or our parents or our spouses, so long as it prospers us. So think about this. Our obedience problem is really what? It's a love problem. St. Augustine of Hippo put it best when he wrote, don't laugh at his name, kids. He put it best when he wrote, there can only be two basic loves. Listen, the love of God unto the forgetfulness of self or the love of self unto the forgetfulness and denial of God. Now, before we get too far down the road, it's important for us to understand the context of Jesus' words. He's speaking to his disciples in the upper room. He's about to be betrayed and go to the cross the next day. He is speaking to these disciples, and, and they have come to love Jesus more than themselves, at least on most days. Three years earlier, Jesus called them to join him in his kingdom, and he he opened up their hearts to his love and the love of God, and they left all they had to go and to follow after him. And now in this passage that's, that's before us, right before our passage, Jesus says that he is leaving them soon. He's going to go to prepare a room for them. He's returning to his Father in heaven, and the disciples are crushed. What? You were doing what? They don't fully understand, at least not yet. And so Jesus says in verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And what is he saying? I like how J.C. Ryle paraphrases these words. He says, If you really love me, prove your love, not by weeping and lamenting at my departure, but by striving to do my, my will when I'm gone. Doing, not crying, 
is the best proof of love. And so here's the issue that Jesus is trying to deal with with his disciples. It's, it's self-pity and, and, a, and a desire to, to return to the curved-in life that was theirs before following Christ. The disciples likely thought, well, if Jesus is leaving, then he's abandoning everything. He's giving up on this kingdom. They feel, don't they, they feel probably like the Cleveland Cavalier fans. <laughs> what, LeBron, you're leaving us again? Because <laughs> you got a better deal with some other team? How could you? We too can experience feelings along those lines. Christ can seem distant. Our calling to obey him and spread the good news of the kingdom, it can grow dim. It's hard to obey Christ and to take up our cross daily and follow after him, to to not store up treasure on earth, but to store up treasure in heaven. It's hard to seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness. And so we can easily put those things on the back burner and return to living curved-in lives of self-pity. Do you see this tendency? Thankfully, Jesus quickly teaches these disciples about the link between obedience and love. This morning, we're going to investigate Jesus' words. We're going to try to, to discover how they reveal the greatness of God's love for us. If it's true that we live in obedience to the one whom we love most, then if we lack obedience to Christ in his kingdom, then what we really lack is what? A proper love for Christ. Our obedience problem really is a love problem. And so my aim this morning isn't try to focus on how little we obey, but how much God loves us. And so by soaking in the love of God, we will love God more. And the more we love God, the more we will will obey him. So let's investigate that. After saying, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, Jesus says he has a gift for us. Look at verse 16 and 17. I will ask my Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The first and second persons of the Trinity give the disciples and us another helper who happens to be none other than the third person of the Trinity. Jesus calls him here the Spirit of truth. In verse 26, he calls him the the helper, the Holy Spirit. Now, check this out. The very first thing that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, what is the very first thing he says about him? It shows us that Jesus understands the, the, what these disciples are going through. He has great compassion for them. He's meeting them at, at their point of greatest felt need. What's the first thing Jesus says about the Holy Spirit as he's about to leave? He will be with you forever. God so loves his people, listen, that that he promises to always be present with them forever. Christian, if you come to believe in Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, has entered into your life. Jesus reminded his disciples, well, you already know him. How is it that they already know him? Well, he's dwelled in their midst. Jesus Christ was filled with the Holy Spirit to the utmost. So they knew the Holy Spirit. They already had the helper in their midst. The Holy Spirit dwelled with them. But here's what Jesus is saying. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would come upon them with more fullness and grace and influence than they had ever experienced before. The helper is coming. 
And so understand this truth and allow it to fan to flame your love for God. The Father and the Son sent us the Holy Spirit to dwell with us as the divine helper until Christ comes again a second time. He is present with you, do you believe this, to supply every need that you have. Listen to this. So satisfying is the work of the Holy Spirit meant to be in our lives that all of our wanting of Christ to be physically present with us is fully satisfied for now by the Spirit. Jesus says that the unbelieving world neither sees him nor knows him. This is why when you live in obedience to Christ, the watching world thinks you're what? A fool. You, on the other hand, because you know the Spirit are under his loving influence. You, you experience inward conviction of sin. You experience joy. You experience a contentment that this world knows nothing about. And yes, your life appears foolish to those without the Spirit. But you experience faith, hope, and love, which only the Spirit dwelling in you can bring into your experience. So Christian, do you see how much God loves you? Do you not love God more than you love yourself? Do you not long to obey Christ and live for him in his kingdom? But Jesus doesn't stop there. Look what he says next in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. The disciples, do they not? They feel like orphans. Orphans have no one to care for them. Orphans have to go out and make their own luck. Orphans feel alone and neglected. They, as Jesus says, their hearts are troubled and afraid. Jesus says to all who follow him, I will not leave you as orphans. Consider this truth. Scripture describes the love of God as an adopting love. He adopts us into his family. John writes this in one of his letters. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Christian, it's out of love that God has adopted you into his family. You and I do not belong in his family, but by his grace, he makes us his children. He adopts us. God has an adopting love towards us. And so Jesus knows that his departure is going to feel like, for the disciples, it's going to, they're going to feel like they've been abandoned as orphans. And it's true, as Christians living in this age, we can feel that way too. Thankfully, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. And then he says, I will come to you. Christian, Jesus knows you by name, and he is coming for you. He says, I will not always stay in heaven, I will return. Do you know what Jesus' very last promise in the Bible is in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20? You know what it is? Jesus says, his last words, surely I am coming soon. That's his very last promise to us. If we're ever to live in obedience to Christ, we need to, we need to settle in our minds that all believers are comparatively orphans in this world in which we live. That is, until Christ's second advent. J.C. Riles puts it this way. Our best things are yet to come. Faith has yet to be exchanged for sight and hope for certainty. Our peace and joy are at present very imperfect. They are as nothing to what we shall have when Christ returns. For the return, let us look and long and pray. 
Christian, do you see how much God loves you? Do you not love God more than you love yourself? Do you not long to obey Christ and live for him and for his kingdom? But Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 19, these words are amazing. Yet in a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. What is Jesus talking about? Well, he's, he's using veiled language to speak of what? His bloody crucifixion and his resurrection. Now, I think it's in care for the disciples that he doesn't use those words. He doesn't say death on a cross and resurrection because the disciples are fragile. But that is what he's getting at. The world won't see me. Why? Because I'm going to die on a cross. But you will see me because I will rise again and appear to you. Now, it's those next seven words in the English that should capture our hearts. They are truly amazing. Listen to what Jesus says. Because I live, you also will live. Here's where proper theology helps us to love God more. Jesus went to the cross knowing that he would die. But death could not hold him. He knew he would rise in victory over sin and death. So he's able to speak of himself as one who lives. Why is this? It's because Jesus, yes, he was fully man, but he was also fully divine. Jesus is the author and creator of all things. He is the maker of life. And because of this, death cannot hold him. And listen... If you trust your life to Christ, this promise is yours too. Because he lives, you also will live. Your resurrected life is now hidden in Christ, in the eternal resurrected giver of life. And the Holy Spirit that dwells in you secures this for you. You you may feel weak and weary. You may feel as if you've let go of Christ, but Christ lays hold of all of God's children. And so, Christian, when you find yourself feeling weak, when you're tempted to return to your curved-in existence, remember the love of Christ towards you. Remember his words afresh in your mind, because I live, you also will live. Christian, do you see how much God loves you? Do you not love God more than you love yourself? Do you not long to obey Christ and live for him and his kingdom? But Jesus doesn't stop there. In verse 20, he says, In that day, that's the day he's going to rise from the grave. It's four days from when he says these words. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Jesus is saying that in a few days, the reality of my rising from the dead is going to hit you. And then you will realize something. What? That, that I am in my Father. In other words, that my nature is divine. That God the Father and God the Son, though two separate persons, are one, along with the Holy Spirit. And then what he says, though, is, is a little unexpected. You would expect him to say... Um, I am in the Father and the Father in me, right? But he doesn't. What does he say? You in me and I in you. Try to wrap your head around this. This is what God does for us in the gospel. The Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, invites us in. 
the perfect joy and happiness and love that has existed for all eternity in the Godhead, in the Trinity. It welcomes us in. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, picture this, have forever been delighting with perfect rapture and delight um, in each other and everything. God is not lacking anything. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are happy. They've never had an unhappy day. And so this reality of the Trinity, this happiness, this overflowing love and joy, we are welcomed into. I'm in my Father, and, 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 and he in, in you, and me, and he's going to get that right. Uh, and you in me, and I in you. What a wonderful promise. All mankind was made in God's image. We've been made for relationships, not just with other human beings, but God himself, but Adam has ruined all that. Our lives are now curved in on ourselves, so much so that relationships with others and relationships with, with God has become hopelessly corrupt. That is, until Christ has made a way back for us. And so here and now is what? It's just a foretaste of the promised splendor to come. Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is a deposit given to the church, given to you, that guarantees this great fulfillment to come. Now, Christian, do you see how much God loves you? Do you not love God more than you love yourself? Do you not long now to obey Christ and live for him in his kingdom? But Jesus doesn't stop there. In verse 21, he kind of rephrases verse 15. 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then Judas, not the one that just left to betray Jesus, the other Judas, asks a great question. Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now, let's make it clear. It's something that should be obvious. And Jesus isn't saying, if you keep my commandments and you're good little people, then we will love you. I will love you. The message of Jesus isn't, isn't obey in order to earn God's love. No, Jesus is simply pointing out a truth. Those who love me will keep my commandments. Why? Because they love me. And what are these commandments? Well, not so much the Ten Commandments. Now, don't get me wrong. We are to follow and obey them for sure. But in John's Gospel, Jesus' commands are actually quite simple. In the passage right before ours, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you. What? That you love one another as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In the very next passage, John chapter 15, Jesus commands them, abide in me. That's a command. Come, find your life in me. Abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit and demonstrate that you are my disciples. And then he wraps up that little teaching again, going back to this new commandment. Verse in John 15, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. And then listen, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life. 
for his friends. Jesus, my, my friends, um, Jesus' commands are plain and simple. Abide in my love. Soak on it. Find it to be your greatest source of delight and joy and happiness and hope. Abide in me. And, and then out of that abiding in me, love. Just love well. Love like I love you. Love the world. A sacrificial love. Lay down your life. Jesus' commands are really plain and simple. Love God and love your neighbor. If we do these things out of love for Christ, then we've obeyed the commands. We don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments. Now, Christian, do you see how much God loves you? Do you not love God more than you love yourself? Do you not now long to obey Christ and live for him and his kingdom? But Jesus doesn't stop there. Verses 25 and 26, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will help us. How is that? Verse 26, he will teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Consider our human frailty that Jesus helps us with. We are in many ways ignorant people, are we not? It's not just me, I know. All right, we're ignorant of God's will, we're ignorant of his ways, and so we need to be taught his word. And the Holy Spirit is God's present to the church so that we can do just that to teach and remind us all that God has entrusted us in his written word. See, God just doesn't give us his holy word and then expect us to comprehend it with our fallen, curved-in minds. He gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us so we can understand and respond to his holy word. Christians, you know that you have everything you need to love God and to walk in obedience. It's already been given to you. And so when we long to hear a new word from God, let us pray in the Spirit and let us open up His Word. God has given us His Word. He's given us His Spirit so that the Word of God may be illuminated in our hearts and minds. Christian, do you see how much God loves you? Do you not love God more than you love yourself? Do you not long to obey Christ and live for Him in His kingdom? But Jesus doesn't stop there. Though Jesus is departing, he's leaving something behind. What is it? Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, I'm, I'm heading out for good. I've left some seltzers behind in the fridge, right? As nice as seltzer is, um, Jesus has left something more amazing. He says, I'm leaving peace with you. But do you notice it's not just any old peace. He says, my peace. Can that be true? Can Jesus really say he's leaving us his very own peace? I don't think he's a liar, so I think we need to try to figure out what does that mean? You know, in the age in which we live, our hearts become troubled so easily. We become anxious and afraid, just like these disciples, at what can come next. And, and so we can seek peace where? In money and worldly ease and earthly possessions. When we seek our peace in these earthly things, do they not often do more harm than good? They act like weights upon our spiritual lives. They clog our spiritual arteries. But Jesus gives us a, a peace that transcends all earthly troubles. Jesus gives us his peace. 
Listen, the same peace that enabled him to walk towards the cross and endure it with hope, he gives to us. It's the peace that Paul writes in Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Christ gives us his peace. My friends, it is uniquely his to give, and he gives it not like the world gives. He doesn't give his peace to us as a response to how good we are towards him. He gives it despite all those things. He bought this peace with his own blood. It's a costly peace. It's a soul-satisfying peace. And it belongs to you if you belong to Christ. Christians, you believe that. God in love for you gives you his very own peace. So let not your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Christians, do you see how much God loves you? Do you not love God more than you love yourself? Do you not long to obey Christ and live for him and his kingdom? But Jesus doesn't stop there. What Jesus says next is magnificent. Look at verses 28 and 29. You heard me say, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus changes his tack. He doesn't say, if you love me, you obey my commands, like he said before. What does he say? If you love me, you would have rejoiced. Why should they be rejoicing instead of feeling sorry for themselves? Here's how one commentator describes it. You ought to rejoice at my going to the Father, because in so going, I shall resume that glory which I had with him before the world was created, the glory which I laid aside on becoming incarnate. Here on earth during my 33 years of my incarnation, I have been in the form of a servant, dwelling in a body as one inferior to the Father. In leaving this world, I go to take up again the equal glory and honor which I had with the Father before my incarnation. I go to be once more almighty with the almighty and to share once more my Father's throne as a person in that trinity. I go to receive the kingdom and honor which in eternal counsels the Father has prepared for the Son. And on this account, if you really knew and understood it all, you would, be, you would rejoice at my going. Listen, in the greatest love ever possible, Jesus left glory that you and I can't even picture right now. This glory in heaven, and he humbled himself to live in our place, to die in our place, and to rise in our place. And Jesus is about to accomplish his very last deeds on earth, just as his father commanded. And so he is right to return to the glory that he left behind for our sakes. Those disciples and us, we should rejoice that Jesus Christ has returned. Christians, you see how much God loves you. Do you not love God more than you love yourself? Do you not long to obey him and live for him in his kingdom? But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus ends with these amazing words in verses 30 and 31. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. 
but I do as the Father has commanded me, so the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. While the disciples are wallowing in self-pity at Jesus' leaving, Jesus still has one immense hardship knocking on his door. Rise, let us go from here. To where? To the cross. The ruler of this world, Satan, has orchestrated a sinister plot whereby his agents on earth are going to arrest, try, and crucify Jesus, the Son of God. Satan believes that he's about to pin Jesus to the mat. The ruler of this world musters all of his evil forces to violently attack Jesus. But our lovely Lord says these wonderful words. He has no claim on me. But oh, Satan has a claim on every other human being who's ever lived. For we all fall short of the glory of God. All except, of course, the Son of God sent for us. He came without sin. He came to die, to to cleanse us of sin. But check this out. In doing so, what has Jesus done for you? He's removed Satan's claim on you. And now if you trust in Christ, the ruler of this world has no claim on you either. Jesus did this in love for you, but even more so, as we see in this passage, he did it for his love of his heavenly Father. Jesus began our passage by saying, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now he finishes by showing the disciples that he loves the Father and therefore obeys all of the Father's commands. Look at verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Listen, my friends, in calling us to love him and obey him, Jesus isn't calling us to do anything that he doesn't do himself. But you know where you and I, we, we fail in keeping our obedience? You and I are so easily tempted to give in. But Jesus never gave in. How is that possible? How is perfect obedience possible? Perfect obedience is only possible because of a perfect love. Remember the connection between love and obedience. You obey the person you love most. And so strong, so powerful, so overwhelming, overwhelmingly joyful, so perfect is the love of the Son for the Father that perfect obedience obedience naturally flowed. I don't think Jesus really had to think much about obedience because he loved his father so much. It just naturally flowed. Ponder this. If Jesus' life was in the slightest way, the slightest way curved in on himself, then Satan would have an in into his life. Jesus could have been led astray. But Jesus' love for his heavenly Father is perfect. 
And so in just a few hours, we will find Jesus on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, pondering his coming death, being separated from his father. And he's there on his knees asking him if there's any other way to bring about our forgiveness than the cross. Could you just let me know what that is? He says, Father, if, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus willingly went to the cross to die for sinners like you and me. And in doing so, he shows the world his perfect love for his heavenly Father. Christian, do you see how much God loves you? Do you not love God more than yourself? Do you now long to obey Christ and live for him in his kingdom? And now, Jesus does stop there. He has told them what he needs to tell them for now. It would only be later, after his death and resurrection, that the Holy Spirit will come upon them and remind them all that Jesus has said. But for now, Jesus has just one last command from his heavenly Father to obey. And so he says to his disciples, and he says to us, rise, let us go on from here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. We, by the Spirit, we're able to comprehend that love and obedience are intimately connected. And that perfect love and perfect obedience is found only in the Son. And that through the Son, though, our adversary has no claim on us. May we be a people who abide in this love. May we abide in you, Christ. May you be the one who turns our curved in nature outwards and upwards. May it happen so that you would be glorified in all we do, we pray. Amen.